This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Daphna, it's Tuesday. Are it's you ready? Tuesday. We're ready. I'm not ready. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just not in the mood today. But we'll we do will. it. We'll, we'll get it done. We're doing right, four questions. So let's go. It's not too bad. Yeah, the questions are fine. It's just sometimes, you know, it's, I think everybody goes through these days where it's like, ugh, I'm not in the mood. And yeah, don't want to study I think, today. Yeah, but I think I think that's the way you should do it. Just say, all right, I'm going to do two questions. And mm-hmm. then maybe uh, as you start, you will... That's where the podcast it. is useful, right? I hope so. <laughs> I really hope so. Okay, Daphna, you're up today with gastroenterology question nine. A one-month-old male infant who was born full-term has biphasic strider that worsens when he cries. He's well-appearing and a febrile. Chest radiograph shows a normal cardiothymic silhouette. Bronchoscopy reveals a large mass compressing the trachea above and below the glottis. A computer computer tomography or CT scan of his neck and chest reveals a cystic mass in the superior mediastinum. The mass is removed surgically and determined by pathology to be an esophageal duplication cyst. Mm -hmm. I like how when you think the question is coming up, they mm-hmm. keep solving problems. So, you know, <laughs> in addition to airway obstruction and respiratory compromise, which of the following is another potential complication of an esophageal duplication cyst? Choice A, acid secretion by gastric epithelium leading to ulceration and erosion into contiguous structures. Choice B, dysphagia and epigastric pain. Choice C, malignant transformation and then D is none of the above, and E is all of the above. So I thought this was going to be a question about <laughs> why does this kid have Strider? <laughs> but thankfully it wasn't, right? So they told us what the kid has. Um, and so I, when I was studying this, I, I've, not, I've not yet seen an esophageal duplication cyst, but I remember thinking that it would be terrifying if they were acid secreting and would lead to ulceration and erosion mm-hmm. <laughs> into structures in the chest. So um, A is correct. Um, but the other answers, because we have, we can have a combination of choices, dysphagia and epigastric pain, I guess, I guess it could. And then malignant transformation. Um, I felt like probably was a reasonable answer because, um, of all of the different cell types that could be Mm -hmm. in the duplication cyst. And so none of the above was not the right answer. I thought it was at least A and C. So probably B and all of the above. B. Yeah, you are correct. All of the above. Um, yeah, and I feel like every time the wrong types of cells are in not, I mean, when when cell types are not in the right place, yeah, that's a, a recipe. <laughs> yeah. So the um, esophageal duplication cyst is obviously rare, and it's a congenital anomaly occurring in about one in about eight thousand births. Um, this is obviously something that results from. Um, um, the budding of the foregut in the early embryonic life, and they can be spherical, tubular, and they could contain smooth muscles, skeletal muscles, columnar squamous, or gastric epithelium, or a combination of the above. 
So from a technical standpoint, it's not really difficult to understand. You imagine your esophagus and you have a little pouch there, right? You have a, you have a cyst. Um, most affected infants are asymptomatic and the diagnosis is usually made incidentally with 22%, like only not even a quarter of them presenting before the age of two. Hey, that's sim- scary. That's very scary, but it makes me feel good that most likely they'll present outside the naked. That's right. <laughs> we probably won't diagnose them. Those symptoms uh, usually involve respiratory problems due to the airway obstruction, but they may have dysphagia, epigastric pain. Um, and like you said, if they're not being removed, they can undergo malignant transformation. Um, and like you said, the the irritation and the perforation of the esophagus could happen if the epithelium that's there is gastric epithelium, which eventually then in turn will produce uh, acid and that will cause ulceration and and erosion into the neighboring structure. So the treatment is obviously surgical with resection uh, as the definitive treatment with uh, removal of intrathoracic cysts presenting potential risk for the recurrent laryngeal nerve um, and obviously uh, all the complications associated with that. So yeah, good job. Yeah, I can remember things when they shock me. <laughs> Make the, me feel the, a little terrified. Like if, if, if the, the board have scared you straight. That's right. <laughs> okay, question 10. A two-week-old former 29-week gestational age neonate develops feeding intolerance and abdominal distension. Radiographic findings demonstrate pneumatosis, intestinalis, and free intra-abdominal air, which is consistent with necrotizing enterocolitis. The pediatric surgeon recommends a laparotomy. While obtaining consent for the procedure, the parents ask the surgeon about potential complications. Which of the following statements is true? A, laparotomy has been shown to have a lower morbidity and mortality rates compared to more... To, sorry. A, laparotomy has been shown to have lower morbidity and mortality rates compared to primary peritoneal drain placement for the surgical management of neck. B, medically and surgically managed patients with neck have similar long-term neurodevelopmental outcomes. C, recurrent neck occurs in 25% of cases. D, the mortality rate of surgical neck is greatest in infants of lower gestational age. E, the most common delayed complication of neck is the formation of an intestinal stricture involving the right colon. Lots of information there. I know, but it's neck and it's laparotomy. It's like, we've done that. Like, <laughs> I, I didn't need to read it in the book. Um, so choice A says laparotomy has been shown to have lower morbidity and mortality rates compared to primary peritoneal drain placement for the surgical management of neck. And that I know not to be true. I mean, mm-hmm. if you just put a drain in a baby that does have necro- necrosis of the gut, y- you're not going to solve the issue. You could initially do this to stabilize the patient, but you eventually will need to reject the necrotic segment. So that's not true. Medically and surgical management uh, managed patients with neck have similar long-term neurodevelopmental outcomes. I've done research on neurodermatal outcome. This is mm-hmm. absolutely false. Surgical neck is terrible. And you should look at the change in uh, cognitive outcomes for babies who have medical neck versus surgical. Yeah, it's significant. Like, yeah, it's probably one of the worst things that could happen. So mm-hmm. definitely no. Uh, recurrent neck occurs in 25% of cases. And that's when you start wondering. You're like, that's well, right. 25%? One in four? 25%? Like it... <laughs> I don't remember one in four kids that I took care of having recurrence of neck. So it sounded odd, to be honest with you. So I left it. I put a pin in that one. 
Choice D said the mortality rate of surgical neck is greatest in infant of lower gestational age. And it's like, oh, duh, of course. <laughs> like the smaller the baby, the worse the outcome, sure. And uh, so that pretty much was a slam dunk. And choice E was the most common delayed complication is the formation of a stricture. That, that's true. Um, it's um, it, That's true, but it's not of the right colon. I mean, that's the that was the trick there. Um, so, so, I mean, choice D was so over the top that I, I picked D that, uh, the lower the gestational age, the mortality, the higher, the mortality rate for surgical neck. Yeah. So it's D. So let's walk these through and talk about why the other answers are false. So A talks about management of neck of, uh, perforation, really. Do you want a laparotomy or a, a peritoneal drain? And so studies have actually shown that um, they have similar rates of morbidity and mortality um, in patients who receive laparotomy or primary peritoneal drain placement for the management of neck. And many babies can get away with just a peritoneal drain placement. Uh, so why proceed with the full laparotomy? Though, of course, some babies do need uh, the laparotomy. Um, B, like you said, um, unfortunately, babies who have surgically treated uh, neck have uh, much poorer neurodevelopmental outcomes than babies um, who uh, can be treated medically. Um, interestingly, uh, babies who have neck and they're treated medically, their neurodevelopmental outcomes are actually pretty similar to babies without neck. And then let's get into some numbers for us to remember. Recurrent neck occurs in only 6% of babies. Um, so that feels pretty good. Um, and then the most common delayed complication of neck is a formation of an intestinal stricture involving the right colon. So that that is incorrect because the most common place where strictures occur is in the left colon. Um, so about 49% of all uh, post-neck strictures occur. Uh, present in the left colon. The next most common location is the right colon, 22%. Uh, but that's why that answer was wrong. And um, up to about a third, 36% of affected infants of neck may develop a stricture um, overall. So very good question. I think we learned a lot about neck. Okay. All right, Daphna, question 11, an emphalocele is a congenital abdominal wall defect resulting from incomplete body wall folding during embryogenesis. Which of the following statements is false? Choice A, approximately 10% of infants with emphalocele will have also gigantism, macroglossia, and hypoglycemia secondary to pancreatic hyperplasia. Choice B, associated genes include pituitary home box 2, insulin-like growth factor 2, cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitor 1C, and a methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase gene polymorphism. I am on a roll today. I'm just like breezing. You're nailing the words. <laughs> Congenital anomalies are noted in 50 to 70% of patients with an emphalocele. Choice D the incidence of emphalocele is 1 to 3 per 10,000 live birth. Choice E, the presence of an emphalocele is associated with young maternal age. Okay, so we are looking for the question, the, the answer false. that is false. So there false. are lots of things on here that I'm not sure I know, but let's go for it. So uh, 
Is it 10% of infants also have gigantism, macroglossia, and hypoglycemia? So um, they're talking about Beckwith-Wiedemann, right? So I know that that is associated with emphalocyles. Is it 10%? I'm not sure. Um, Associated genes include pituitary, homeobox 2, insulin-like growth factor 2. Lots of genes. Uh, Maybe. (laughs) Could be. (laughs) Because I know that it's associated with with a lot of of genes. And that's why babies with emphalocyles frequently have... um, other comorbidities. Um, so I don't know. I put a pin in it. Congenital anomalies are noted in 50 to 70% of patients with emphalocele. I know that's true. The incidence of emphalocele is one to three per 10,000 live births. That sounds potentially right. And then the presence of emphalocele is associated with young maternal age. So thankfully, <laughs> I know that that is false um, because that fact is about gastrocystis, not about emphalocele. So whereas I don't, I'm not sure about the other answers. I know that E is false. That is correct. That's why you can't get overwhelmed when like C is too long to read. You just got to power through. I know. I mean, these are the types of questions where you just pray that like one statement comes out (laughs) and you'd be like, yes, this one, I, this one, I know. (laughs) Right. Um, So obviously the, um, so emphalocyles are is a midline defect uh, where you have eviscerated abdominal content that is covered by a protective sac, differentiating it, differentiating it from gastroschisis where the actual abdominal content is exposed. Interestingly enough, it is associated with advanced maternal age, and approximately thirty percent of affected infants have an abnormal karyotype, including either trisomy thirteen, trisomy eighteen, and twenty one. Approximately 50 to 70% of affected patients have associated congenital anomalies. And like you said, they were referring to Beckwith-Wiedemann, which is associated with an emphalocele in 10% of cases precisely. Um, several genes are included, including the pituitary home box 2, the insulin-like growth factor 2, the cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitor 1C, and the methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase gene polymorphism that have been associated with an emphalocele. However, their roles in the pathogenesis is not uh, completely clear. So the week of development that emphalocele usually, ha- usually uh, happen is week 11 to 18. And I think there's a few things that we could uh, keep in mind. Males are affected more predominantly, three to one. Uh, prenatally, it's always interesting to remember that mothers will have an increased alpha fetoprotein. Um, and postnatally, the uh, umbilical cord will be on the sac, right? This is something that is a, a typical feature of an emphalocele. And remember that they will have malrotation, obviously, of the intestines in 100% of cases. Um, the prognosis is really, really good if it's isolated. Um, if it has associated defects, however, the prognosis goes way down and most likely because of these association. Um, if the liver is in the sac, it's associated with less anomalies somehow. So you may think that because the liver is in the is in the emphalocele sac, it may be a bad sign of some sort, but actually it's associated with less anomalies. And then finally, um, often we'll refer to emphalocele whether they're giant or not, but a giant emphalocele is an emphalocele that measures more than five centimeters. Um, and that's also, I think, a fun fact to know. I don't know about fun. It's a it's an yeah, interesting fact. It's, it's an interesting fun. fact to know. <laughs> Um, but I remember when I was a fellow and I was given sign out about this kid that had the giant emphalocele, my mind went like 
very extreme. I was like, oh my God, like, you know, what? How big know. can it be? <laughs> That's right. I never put it past the, our NICU to, to, to make something big. So anyway, it's not that big, but it's five centimeters or more. Okay. Okay. Question 12, a similar type of question. A 36-week gestational age male is born uh, with an abdominal wall defect one centimeter to the right of the umbilicus. Eviscerated abdominal contents, including large and small bowel, are not covered in a protective sac, and the infant is diagnosed with gastroschisis. Which of the following statements is true? A, gastroschisis is associated with advanced maternal age. B, gene polymorphisms of endothelial nitric oxide synthase, intracellular adhesion molecule 1, and atrial natriuretic peptide have been associated with a tenfold increased risk of developing an emphalocele. C, intrauterine growth restriction is more likely to occur in infants born with an emphalocele than in infants born with a gastroschisis. D, prolonged ileus, catheter-related infection, and sepsis are the most common complications of gastroschisis and affect 15% to 30% of patients. E, the majority of infants born with gastroschisis will have an associated intestinal atresia or stenosis. This is such an unfair question because <laughs> the diagnosis is gastroschisis, and like half That's of right. the answer choices are about emphalocyles. That's right. So, <laughs> so Dr. Brodsky and Martin, please. <laughs> Keep the, the questions tighter. <laughs> well, I think this is a good question. These two questions back to back because they're like, they're similar, but they're very different, right? They're mm-hmm. totally different. So it, it's helpful, I think, to compare the two. Absolutely. So um, interestingly enough, the last question said that emphalocyles are associated mm-hmm. with a, a younger maternal age. And this question says, Gastroschisis. Emphalocyles are associated with advanced maternal age. Right. So that's what I'm trying to say. So the, okay. the, they were testing us on the maternal age in both questions. Mm-hmm. And here it says gastroschisis is associated with an advanced maternal age. Well, no. So emphalocyles, advanced, gastroschisis, younger maternal age. Um, and the way I remember this is that an emphalocyle is much bigger. So in my mind, I think advanced maternal age and a gastroschisis feels a bit more tiny. It's usually in this like tiny silo. So I'm thinking younger maternal age. Don't, don't, don't judge me. Maybe it's tinier. I don't know. <laughs> it feels tinier. It does feel tinier to me. Depends. But anyway, the gene, the gene polymorphism of endothelial nitric oxide synthase and all that stuff, that was very confusing. I wasn't sure. Um, and the fact that it was associated with a tenfold increase in the risk of developing an emphalocele. It's like, I, I, really, I really did not know whether it was tenfold or not. So I, I, I just put a pin in that. Uh, IUGR um, is more likely to occur in infants born with an emphalocele than infants born with a um, gastroschisis. Um, I knew that to be false. Choice D, prolonged ileus, catheter-related infection, and sepsis are the most common complication of gastroschisis and affects 15 to 30% of patients. I actually know that to be true. And like you, the other question, I was like, phew, phew. I, I can pick this one confidently and then the last the, but the last choice was not super tough either i mean the the majority of infants born with gastroschisis will have an associated intestinal atresia or stenosis they may but the majority no uh th- that was a bit too over the top so i picked d that um yeah they, they are they're prolonged ileus and catheter related infection choice uh perfect that's right so 
um, let's talk a little bit about gastroschisis and we'll walk it back. It's an abdominal wall defect, uh, an incidence of one to three per 10,000 live births, which is pretty similar, almost identical to the incidence of emphalocele's. The abdominal wall defect in patients with gastroschisis almost always occurs to the right of the umbilicus, uh, like in this patient, and again, has no overlying sac. Um, and it's thought to be um, because of compromise of the right umbilical vein or the omphalomesenteric artery, and that's why it occurs on the right side. Um, so if you have something that compromises the blood flow to that area, it causes mesodermal and endodermal ischemia to the abdominal wall, uh, and, and that's why um, you have evisceration of, of the organs. Mm -hmm. Um, and the eviscerated abdominal structures are not covered, like I said, with a protective sac. And that why that is a problem is because then they're exposed to the amniotic fluid. And this really helps explain the clinical um, pathway for these babies or the prognostic pathway. So the babies with gastroschisis tend to have a much harder time um, getting back to full feeds uh, because of kind of the inflammation that's happened um, to the intestines because they've had direct contact with the amniotic fluid. Mm. So it makes sense that they are on prolonged IV fluids or uh, TPN because they can be so hard to feed. And so they have this prolonged ileus, they are at risk for catheter-related infection, and they're at risk for sepsis, much more so than babies with emphalocele, who while have way more um, other potential anomalies or syndromes associated with it, um, mm -hmm. can actually get up to full feeds pretty pretty well, usually without difficulty. Um, so our other answers, uh, gastroschisis is associated with um, young maternal age uh, as opposed to advanced maternal age. And like you said, emphalocele is associated with advanced maternal age. These are the gene polymorphisms associated with um, gastroschisis. Oh, and so, the they were the, so they were the they ones. They are. They are <laughs> correct, which wasn't what this question was at. The answer choice was actually referring to emphalocele, but these are associated with gastroschisis, endothelial nitric oxide synthase, intracellular adhesion molecule one, um, and ANP. Um, they, uh, having them, um, predisposes a two-fold uh, risk of gastroschisis. And if you have one and your mom is a smoker, um, then you have a five-fold risk uh -huh. of gastroschisis. So I was right. Tenfold was a bit too much. Too much. Yeah. Um, gastroschisis is also associated uh, with the following. Like I said, maternal smoking, alcohol use, illicit substance use, uh, especially like cocaine and over-the-counter vasoactive medications um, and uh, salicylates. Uh, the other answer choices, intrauterine growth restriction is more likely to occur in infants with gastroschisis than in those babies born um, with emphalocele. Yeah, and, and that makes sense, right? I mean, somehow, I don't know about you, but I tend to think of these emphalocele as these big babies and the gastroschisis are usually much more petite and, and growth restricted. Yeah, the way I remember is that is emphalocele's are uh, frequently associated with beckwith wiedemann which That's is an true. overgrowth syndrome. So I'm going to remember that those are in normally 10%, grown. In 10% of cases, as yeah. we learned in, in the previous question. Um, but I'm going to remember that that's an association. And so they tend to be normally grown babies. Um, while uh, gastroschisis um, has intrauterine growth restriction in about 20 to 60% of, 
of babies, a significantly higher percentage uh, than those born with emphalocele. And then um, the majority of infants born with gastroschisis will have uh, basically an isolated gastroschisis without any other associated malformation, but 10% of those babies will have a concurrent intestinal atresia or stenosis, which may also impact their ability to, um, to get back to full feeds or get up to full feeds, I should mm-hmm. say. But it's not the majority of infants. It's only about 10%. Okay. I think that was, that was helpful. I don't know about you, Daphna, but I'm not sure the, if, if, I mean, I remember from my exam, I didn't memorize those all those genes. I think it's it's a bit it's a bit much. I'm hopeful that you can remember a lot of the other clinical characteristics that are much right. easier to remember um, than than that. But we'll see. Something to look at at the end, I guess. This is this is daunting. In any case, this was fun. I learned a lot. I was not in the mood to do these questions, but I'm happy <laughs> I did them. Good. All right, Daphna. I'll see you tomorrow. Okay. Sounds good. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUpodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.